This is Inside Ringa, podcast looking at the federal election from the perspective of the Northern Beaches in this episode. Hi, I'm Kristen Glanville and I'm the Greens candidate for Warringah. Hi, my name is David Mickborough. I'm the Labor Party candidate for Warringah. To be clear, we are still trying to get in contact with Catherine Deves, the Liberal Party candidate for Warringah. We'll keep trying though. In this episode, we cover issues like climate change and how to transition carbon-intensive industries like transport or agriculture, and the rising cost of housing and how wages aren't keeping up with the cost of living. We start with Kristen describing how she first became a candidate. Well, I guess I first ran as a Greens candidate in the last federal election, and I felt very strongly that we were in a pretty important time in politics. I'd been working as a lawyer um, and doing pro bono for some refugees, and I was just kind of appalled at how as a country we thought it was okay to treat refugees in you know the ones I was working with were actually lucky enough to be in Australia but the way that we keep them in community detention with indefinite sort of answers about what their lives will be like I was quite horrified and at the same time there were other issues like climate change that just were not being addressed and So I guess that's what prompted me to first run for Warringah. And notwithstanding the efforts of the incumbent, um, nothing has really changed on that front. We are still treating refugees inhumanely. We still are in a, without any meaningful climate change policy in this country. I feel, still feel the same kind of fire in my irons about trying to make politics better. I'm sorry, my Hugo has decided that he's been very chilled the last hour and a half and he's just naturally decided now is his grumpy time. No, all good, all good. Um, I might, uh, that's, <laughs> I might pivot to David. <laughs> mm. Um, okay, so yeah, it's a good question. I'll probably start just with why I decided to run in the first place. Mm-hmm. Pure and simple, uh, I don't think it's too facile to say that I think that this is a objectively bad administration we're currently under. Um, I think the Liberal National Party, on so many metrics, on so many levels, on so many issues, have uh, they've completely dropped the ball, um, not just on fundamental issues of, say, competence, but also just on, on issues such as accountability and integrity that are just so important to our democracy. You know, there's almost a real contempt in some of their behaviours and statements for the Australian people and the Australian voter. And I really do think that in order for our democracy to recover and flourish, I really do think that we do need a change of government and only Labor can provide that. And that probably is a good segue into the second part of the question about what I can offer to the people of Warringah via V. Zali Stegel, who, um, you know, we acknowledge she's quite a popular candidate, quite high profile. We definitely do share some of some of the values she does and some of some of the issues that she is particularly strong on and runs on. We're we're proud of those platforms too, such as our climate change powering Australia policy, such as our shared desire for a um, national anti-corruption commission uh, and those sort of issues, which we know that the people of Warringah are passionate about. I certainly do share the values of the people of Warringah. um, And I think on top of that, we've got the capacity to provide a meaningful voice uh, by being a seat at the table of of the um, presiding government. Yeah, if I can kind of respond to that, because I think it's a lot of people, particularly in right-wing media, kind of portray Zali as being a sort of hidden green or a hidden Labour person. And I think that there's actually a lot of meaningful policy difference between um, the sort of teals in that I don't think that 
they are in any way willing to critique capitalism in a way that a Greens party would. You know, I, I think sometimes I feel that some of the teal rhetoric is that, well, we can all just be solar millionaires and never mind that, well, really, if we have the market determine renewable energy policy, we'll end up in the same position of energy haves and have nots where, you know, and that's already what's happening is we have large renewable energy projects being funded and invested by a small number of very wealthy people and not actually fundamentally changing how economic power is distributed. And I think that has really important implications for democracy because, you know, someone like Zali feels very strongly about the the distorting impacts of money in politics. But are we just inviting that 2.0 if we create a generation of, you know, solar barons um, who own all of the renewable energy assets? So I think that equally, you know, we have to critique the idea that we can have infinite growth on a physically finite planet. We have to think about things like degrowth or alternatives to consumption, which doesn't necessarily play well with the kind of teal rhetoric of basically the status quo, but with more solar panels. Because that's one of the reasons for asking the question, right, is that if you, the issues that you're listing with one being like climate change or transparency in government, these are issues that Zali would say that she rounds and people that support her also agree with that but it's just trying to find where that difference lies so yeah david um if there because is the difference between zali and labor that different um viewpoint of worker equality it's it's quite interesting and funny to me that we've sort of been labeled our platform has been labeled you know quote unquote small target and i think that's probably just when it's cross-referenced against our platform the 2019 election but we do have a quite an expansive range of policies which do seek to enhance that social equity and also for workers, you know, where I think one of the most important things that we're going to be putting forward, and certainly I will be putting forward to the people of Warringah, um, is that issue of secure work. You know, we've had increased casualization, we've had profit share growing, uh, but we haven't had the proportionate growth in in, in workers' wages. Um, even today, our Prime Minister will say things such as, oh, there's no magic this isn't Harry Potter world or Hogwarts and trying to dismiss it. The thing is, though, there are so many, there are so many things that you can do, so many um, moves you can make which can, which can influence and push you know, workers' wages up the same way that they will take credit for a low unemployment rate. That apparently happens by design. However, workers' wages is something that's out of our hands. It's absolutely not out of your hands. Labor does promise to uh, make many substantive changes to, for example, the, the Fair Work Act. Uh, to enshrine certain tenants such as, you know, the gender equity pay gap and closing that, making that an objective. Um, and Kristen, as a, as a lawyer, uh, like myself, I'm sure that you could appreciate the um, the significance of something like that, whereby a decision maker will have to look at these objectives and aims of an act in making a determination. So, you know, things like making wage theft illegal, a pursuit of, of, of gender equity, I believe at the moment, there's something like approaching, I don't think it's 14%, but it's close to it. And also, something that is just, you know, common sense, right? The same work, same pay. If you enshrine tenants like that in the Fair Work Act, you will you will absolutely have beneficial effects in terms of increasing workers' wages and putting that upward pressure at, um, and not letting, you know, living costs get away from so many workers in Warringah in Australia, such as they are at the moment. So on that, uh, the gender pay gap as an example, how in 
in a corporate world, would that work from the legislation? Is it more that it would be enshrining that ruling with government workforces and then for that for flow in the private sector or, or would there be sort of legislation to, to bring that level of enforcement? Well, to be clear that, you know, if, if you're making an amendment to say, you know, the objective or the, or the aims of a legislation, that's not going to be a, a single factum be all end all you must pay on the same. But what it does is it has a, it's one part of that factual matrix and it, and it influences decision, it'll influence decision makers. Um, so it'll have those beneficial effects of, of pushing us towards that gender equity, which, which we need, you know. Kristen was raising this also in this idea of perpetual um, growth, especially when it comes to the cost of housing, where you just you see that there doesn't seem to be a limit on how far or how high a price can get. So what is a what is a way that we can to address that? Do we try to help people to to buy property at that increased rate, or do we? try to do something to, to stem that growth? Because I know yeah. that negative gearing was a topic in the last federal election, um, but I think got a little bit uh, sort of rubber hits the road when it comes to in Ringa, where there's a lot of um, self-funded retirees who didn't want that price to, to you know, to stop growing. Um, so how do we how do we play with that? Well, I guess there's a few answers. I think the reasons that houses are expensive is kind of a multifaceted problem. And I don't think that there is sort of like one simple quick fix. I think probably the most important thing is to kind of shift about how we think about housing. And from a Greens perspective, we're pushing strongly this election, the idea of what does universal housing look like? You know, we have public housing wait lists that are completely blown out. People wait years to get into public housing. They wait years to get into affordable or community housing. First home buyers just can't save as fast as the market's rising. So this election, our policy platform includes some measures to address some of those things. You know, we have a policy plan of if we were elected, we would build a million new homes and those homes would be a combination of public houses, um, affordable rental properties, and shared equity properties where the um, first-home buyers with a small deposit can basically co-own a home with the government so that they um, retain equity. And I'm pleased to see that my colleagues in the Labor Party have recently announced a very similar policy because I think it's a great one. And it's one that almost feels a little back to the future in that post-war, I mean, we we had schemes like that. It was considered pretty garden variety, Keynesian economic, but it just seems to have fallen by the wayside in how we look at housing these days. I don't even, I wouldn't say that those policy measures would even be a complete fix, to be perfectly honest. I think that there's negative gearing needs to be looked at. I personally think, and this is my personal opinion, that we need to think very seriously about whether we need to put a limit on how many homes a single person can own. The way that the property market keeps rising and the way that people can kind of structure their loans you can just keep jackpotting. You just keep buying more and more properties. And once you start getting into a positively geared position, you just keep buying more of them. Um, And I don't think it's right. In the Northern Beaches, we have something like 6,000 vacant homes on 2016 ABS data. It's nice for people to have a holiday home, but should we 
as a matter of policy priority, prioritise getting those homes to enter either the sale or rental market. Housing keeps going up, but that wouldn't be a problem if wages weren't so completely depressed. I mean, if wages and housing were increasing at a similar rate to one another, it wouldn't matter that houses were so expensive, but real wages haven't really grown in probably two decades. I mean, the cost of living far exceeds the way that wages have grown. So all of which is a really long-winded way of saying that I, I, there isn't a single solution. I think we need to look at basically throw everything at the wall and kind of ask ourselves every tier level of government, what can we do to make housing more affordable? And for some in our community, that may be a bit uncomfortable because it may mean that there's a stigma around building social housing. And, you know, you see it on Facebook, people complaining about boarding houses or community housing being built in their area. But um, these days that housing isn't even going to people who are stigmatised people on welfare it's people like nurses and police officers and teachers who can't continue to afford to live in our area so there's just so much that has to happen to make housing affordable i don't think the liberal party has any real interest in addressing largely because i would say that its voting base is well on anu's research would heavily skews in favor of people who own property uh so they're they're voting and electoral interests are entirely aligned with keeping the status quo where people already in the market continue to get wealthier and needs to change. The properties that enter the market through a supply-only solution are entering at the current market value. If you look at Western Sydney, where we have big land releases, those houses aren't afford they're not entering the market at an affordable price. They are entering at the median for Sydney real estate. So, I mean, it's basically, in my view, just an excuse to keep upzoning things and let developers have a real ball of property development. And I I mean, my background is as an environment and planning lawyer. So I'm have worked on plenty of projects and I don't consider myself to be anti-development, but I think the type of development that we're getting is directed towards developer profit and not, for example, building communities or building affordable housing. So David, where would you straddle in that idea of bringing increased supply for more houses to be around um, or on that developer side of just trying to <laughs> make more money from having more and more apartment blocks? First thing I'd probably say is that we, you know, we, we did run 2019. That battle was, um, was, was fought and lost and we, we went in with an expansive um, demand side reforms, right, with capital gains tax discount. Uh, or concession reduction, as well as the, obviously the negative gearing. So we learned our lesson from from that election. I think a more pragmatic approach, which we've taken at the moment, uh, at the, the upcoming election, is I think to make some more incremental, modest reforms, but still significant ones. So it's not just a demand side issue, and it's not just a supply side issue. So we've um, Kristen mentioned the the, the shared equity program which we've which we've announced recently i think that's a i think that's a good program and i think you know it's risible that it's sort of been tempted to latch onto a scare campaign it's been branded as you know you know albanese wants to wants to be your um housemate and he they're going to demand you sell your home even though it's just it's absurd that's not what it means at all considering that a certain percent of something is better than a certain percent of nothing so you know it's it's almost um, criticizing the fact that down the track people may be in a position where they do 
where they have to, or that they have the option to purchase equity back from the from the government because they've aspired to and they've reached that position rather than being in a position where they never have that opportunity at all. The shared equity, that's 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 a demand side uh, reform. There's also the supply side, which is very, very important. Um, I know that we we have plans to um, establish sort of consultative forums with planning and, and council bodies in order to um, address housing affordability, um, and that will sort of influence land release and, and that sort of thing. And there's also one of our policies, which, which I'm quite sort of proud of, which is our social and affordable housing uh, initiative, which is to increase the supply. And that will, on the other end of the, of the spectrum, demand side, on the supply side, building affordable um, and social housing, not just for, not just for, for people on lower um, incomes, but also for um, frontline workers. So we've got a plan over the next five years to um, build um, up to 10,000 of those, and that will enable frontline workers, whether it be nurses, police officers, um, cleaners, to be able to sort of live closer to where they work. David, it was interesting that you you referenced the, the last federal election. I was sort of working on campaigns. I remember the last federal election and people would go up to Azali Segal supporter, get a how to vote, and then would be completely for climate change and action there. But then they would say, oh, geez, don't, don't touch my franking credits. And I know that that is not a, a Labor policy this time around, but it's interesting that there seems to have been lessons where policy ideas would be put forward, um, well, were put forward at last for the election and then were retracted back because it sort of seemed whether it would be too bold for, mm. the, for the greater community to go through it. Do you think that's, um, is it sort of like a, a missed opportunity or it, it just seems like it's just trying to be heavily pragmatic to, to get through to the finish line? Uh, I don't think it's purely, it's not purely political at all. I think it's more, as you alluded to, lessons are learned. We have, we took a very, very clear-eyed view after the election. Um, there was a full review process and we we could sort of appreciate that you're allowed to recalibrate your, your policies and recalibrate your positions. One of the, you raised the franking credits uh, issue. Now, I think that whilst at the time we certainly did put forward the argument that it's an area in need of reform, I think at the same time, it's, it's also worth remembering that a lot of people who were, were beneficiaries of, of franking credits, they had actually forward planned this into their retirement planning. So it's all, you know, maybe you could mount an argument, oh, this is, this is inequitable or, or whatever arguments you make, which we did at the time. But at the same time, I think you do need to appreciate that certainly at least some of the, the beneficiaries of, of, this, of this scheme were in a position whereby as retirees, they, they can't, you can't go back and have another, another crack uh, at working for another five to 10 years. So if you've made these plans, you also need to appreciate that people, it's going to, you know, it's going to affect them and it's going to affect their finances in, in, in some capacity. So you do need to be cognizant of that and appreciative of that. So I think, yeah, to answer the question, yeah, we, we certainly did learn lessons and I think, yeah, we've um, we've reconfigured our policies accordingly. One other question I had, and I was a more sort of a surprise that it's become a policy from different candidate forums and whatnot, is around this idea of having a Bill of Rights. I sort of see that it came about a lot from COVID and there's an element of not liking people to enforce vaccinations or things like that. Have you, 
Do you sort of see that people are talking to you about Bill of Rights or do you have a particular take on enshrining an individual's right within our constitution? I mean, I, I think if you asked any sensible person, they would all be in furious agreement that we should have a Bill of Rights. I think where the rubber hits the road is agreeing on on a set of rights because I think every person will have a different idea about what rights should be in there is some people will want to protect their freedom to do what they want and some people will want more positive rights you know I have a right to housing I have a right to safe employment I have a right to a livable income I have a right to aged care and health care so you know, I think a lot of Greens policies are directed at those sort of universal access rights. Um, and I'd be quite happy to see them enshrined. And I'd also be really happy to see a Bill of Rights that meaningfully grapples with rights of nature and our rights as humans to enjoy nature and our right to kind of co-design development that happens and our right to a healthy, safe climate. But I suspect that the people um, who have, I would say, been a bit radicalised by the anti-vax movement during COVID, what they would want in a Bill of Rights would probably be quite different. They would want a right to bodily autonomy. And to some extent, uh, you know, things like abortion rights or voluntary assisted dying as a Green, I think that those are rights that we, we should protect. Um, so it's it's a difficult thing, I, but I would love to see a kind of democratic conversation about what a Bill of Rights in Australia would look like. Often people have a very poor understanding of actually what rights are protected in our constitution. And as a lawyer, um, almost none. We have a implied freedom of political communication, which was basically the court kind of bending over backwards to kind of find find some meaningful rights in there. We have some voting rights. But beyond that, our constitution is pretty light on detail. It basically operates from a Westminster convention that sort of just assumes that government will operate in a fairly democratic way. And as a consequence, we don't need to enshrine our rights um, in any particular way, because our electoral system will ensure that our rights are protected, because if our politicians fail to meet those rights, we will kick them out. I think probably looking at the way of Australian politics, I don't know that that is quite happening in practice because to enforce your rights really require, requires a lot of money to influence the political process that most ordinary people don't have. Uh, I think this is a great democratic conversation to have. I, as I said, I suspect that um, I'll land in a different place than any vaxxers because I think as much as we have a right to bodily autonomy, I think the counter of balance of that is that we have a duty to our fellow citizens um, and part of that duty is to minimise the risk of health problems to other people through things like vaccination where, you know, you need herd immunity of healthy people to get vaccinated to make it much harder for diseases like polio to spread to vulnerable populations. So uh, it's unfortunate that what should be non kind of bit consensus based kind of discussion about how to deal with pandemics has been i would say radicalized and i think radicalized in a pretty intentional way by um, political opportunists who think that there's some voting you know that they can get an electoral advantage by basically radicalizing a sufficiently large group of people to 
support their views, um, but they don't operate in a truthful way. Yeah, cool. Sorry, David. Um, where do where do you stand on the individual rights um, discussion? I think a good, really, you know, illustrative flashpoint of that is um, the sort of recent parliamentary debates over you know religious discrimination, and I think that's a really good demonstration of how positive negative rights can interact and how difficult it is to to settle on that because much like the anti-vax quote-unquote debate that Kristen was was alluding to it's not as complex it's not as simple it's facile to say oh well everyone should be able to do whatever they want and no one should ever have to abide by public health orders ever because I don't want to or because I don't feel like I need to but you live in a society so often there's fortunately short-term measures that 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 do need to, and you could certainly argue, need to be taken to sort of safeguard the health, not just of yourself, but of society. So I think it's it's fraught with difficulties. And I mean, I I, I don't believe that uh, I don't think that it's it's not an issue that I've been approached um, on a holistic level that much. Obviously, as Kristen, like Kristen, I have been approached about your know, Julian Assange, freedom of press. Um, and about other sort of issues about, yeah, sort of forcible vaccinations and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I just think on a broad level, I think I would say it, it's quite difficult. Um, and, yeah, I think all, all, all rights need to be considered. And, um, yeah, there, there's certainly academic arguments as to why people do not espouse a, a Bill of Rights. And I don't think in our first term of Parliament, if we are um, fortunate enough to get elected, it's probably not going to be one of our first um, agenda items. Um, but you know, you know, you never know. You never know how how I suppose discourse evolves over time. Makes sense. Um, so next one is or next sort of few are on climate change, which I know is a, a big issue within Ringa and especially looking into the northern beaches. Um, but we just a, a quick call out to us, June, both of you presumably are for achieving a net zero outcome. By what year do you think that we should make that a goal? Green's policy would be net zero by 2035. And probably just as important as having net zero is having a meaningful plan to exit coal and gas. Uh, Because a lot of assumptions about achieving net zero are premised on highly speculative technology that basically doesn't exist. And at the moment, achieving net zero by offsetting emissions. Uh, A good deal of that is just throwing cash at the coal industry to kind of give them money to keep polluting by then allowing them to pretend that they'll find technology that will allow them to draw down carbon. I mean, as the Climate Council has said, only the Greens of the major parties as policy platform, which treats climate change, which with the urgency and ambition that it requires. During the Gillard government, when Greens held balance of power, we had a price on carbon. We had created established ARENA and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. I mean, we don't have to be in this position, but the Liberal government has put us there because it has catowed to the fossil fuels industry. And as I alluded to earlier, Fixing climate change isn't a sort of solitary pursuit. It's also a pursuit of changing our economic system and our democratic structures to actually be resilient to these problems because climate change is one of many problems where we have huge amounts of policy capture by vested interests. 
and they use lobbying and political donations to continue to keep policy in their court. You know, in New, across Australia, we have over a hundred new fossil fuels projects um, in the approval process pipeline. I mean, there is no way that we can keep under 1.5 degrees of warming and still have new fossil fuels projects. Green's policy is also to end existing gas and coal production by 2030. Well, I might um, let David jump in. So when are you espousing to hit uh, net zero and what does that transition look like I think anyone would, if you could snap your fingers, you would say, uh, let's achieve net zero by tomorrow. Everyone would be, in, well, apart from the vested interest that Kristen uh, mentioned, I think almost everyone apart from those, you know, few people would would say as soon as possible. Our policy is uh, net zero by 2050. It's expressed through our Parent Australia plan, 43% below 2005 levels um, by 2030. That's a plan that I think is that I think we can be proud of in that it's not only going to lower emissions, but it's also economically very sensible as well. You know, it's got broad backing from uh, the peak bodies such as the Australian Industry Group, um, Business Council, Farmers Federation. Now, you don't get that sort of buy-in unless unless it's a, it's a sound plan because the environmental issue doesn't exist in a vacuum. It also has to make sense economically, you know, whether it's upgrading the grid whether it's through our rewiring the nation plan, uh, whether it's you know investing in our in our clean technologies and, and creating you know over six hundred thousand jobs, um, I think as as capital continues to move, as has been discussed earlier, um, these industries will keep flourishing, and we're in a position. We're so fortunate in Australia. We are in a position where we have that first mover advantage if we decide to take it. We have abundant resources, um, whether it's in, in our mining sector, whether it's you know nickel, copper, um, even cobalt, aluminium. We have the resources here to be able to harness that clean energy technology, and the current government is being woefully asleep at the wheel. Um, they're being negligent, in fact, by not harnessing this first mover advantage because I believe that they are hamstrung by vested interests and they refuse to move and everything needs to be done through Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan. If we're waiting around for them to take initiative and to steer us forward, we're going to be waiting around forever. So for those carbon intensive industries, for instance, mm. um, like farming, you're talking about the Farmers mm. uh, Federation or trans, is yep. it a more a matter of trying to get them to do what they do smarter or is it sort of an element of you know, trying to find another way that they don't have that impact in climate? Yeah, I mean, just as an example, there's huge, and it's actually another example, which is arguably just another one of the you know, shopping list of rorts that the current government is engaged in and has been engaged in. Um, the carbon credit scheme, it's just ineffective. Um, it's They're essentially just paying polluters uh, and they're not actually getting the outcomes there. So reformulating that sort of actually makes it efficient. And that goes in, in our carbon offset, um, sorry, our safeguard mechanism scheme. That's another um, one of our, which has been branded as a sneaky carbon tax, which is quite ironic because it's actually the policy that Tony Abbott brought in. Lowering the, lowering the threshold there um, to a more, you know, a more efficient and outcome delivering level. Um, Chris and I don't know whether you've got a, a comment on that transition of carbon intensive industries, uh, how, how that were able to, to you know, bridge that gap. I mean, it really depends on the industry mm. because for something like agriculture, 
you know, there's interesting work being done around changing the diet of livestock so that they produce less methane. Um, there's also a suite of things that we know that we could, for example, pay farmers to revegetate so that, you know, we better have the ability to draw down carbon through vegetation. Part of it is a technological thing because there are some parts of our supply chain that are carbon intensive that we we don't currently have an alternative to. So the two big ones that jump out to me are things like concrete, where concrete is a surprisingly huge generator of greenhouse gases through its the chemical process. And we don't have an alternative to that. So part of the project is finding ways to uh, make it less environmentally damaging. I suppose also from a greens perspective, we would say, can we avoid use, avoid, reuse, recycle to um, avoid some of that. The other one that jumps out is dealing with metallurgical coal, where um, that is part of the steelmaking process. And again, from a greens perspective, perhaps part of the answer is the avoid, reuse, recycle, because steel is reusable um, and recyclable, but demand is very high for both concrete and steel, as we have to do things like build enough housing for people and a bit like the housing issue I mean I don't think that there's just one kind of neat solution um, each industry is going to have its own challenges in decarbonizing I mean shipping is another one where we currently do not have great technological alternatives to using fossil fuels perhaps for things like ferries electrification is possible in the short term but we need to invest in alternate technologies and also think about how we can again avoid reuse recycle to avoid the consumption that is generating some of world shipping to create move pro products around the world and you know maybe part of decarbonizing shipping is actually having local manufacturing so that we don't need to have um, ships coming halfway across the world burning fossil fuels I mean, it's a many false faceted thing. I, I don't think anyone in the Greens would pretend that there are simple fixes, but we do need a good deal more political will to grapple with them in a meaningful way and not just um, subsidise the fossil fuels industry for all eternity. The last question is around the pre-selection of Catherine Deves. I feel that there's this ongoing discussion at the moment where there's this fear of wokeism in inverted commas and around people fearing that they're not able to say what they want to say and they had more freedoms to say bad things before than they do now. Um, so what's your view on that and where would you draw the line between the freedom to express yourself and the need to stop someone from saying something too bad and too offensive? I guess a lot of people when they say they want freedom of speech really just mean they want to say whatever they like with no consequences. And that's where I see the fundamental problem being, you know, if Catherine Deves or other people want to say transphobic things, that doesn't mean that they are off the hook to not be criticized for those views because words aren't just words. They have very hurtful impacts for people. and. For some of the discussion online I've seen is quite cruel kind of treating things like transgender people's um, participation in sport as a sort of academic trifle 
but it has real hurtful consequences for transgender people to feel excluded. And people who dislike the so-called wokeism or cancel culture, I think are really just people who want to say what they want to say without being willing to actually own the negative consequences of what they've said or the fact that other people have a freedom of speech to actually call them out what is problematic about their views. I should add that Green's policy would um, ensure that we have rigorous, you know, rules about hate speech. So I do think that there are some limitations to kind of how far you can kind of let people say whatever they want. And it's always going to be tricky to find that fine line between things that people can say that aren't illegal but aren't hurtful that we rightfully call them out on and what is illegal. But, you know, I do think that there's also a sort of a historical aspect to people who feel very aggrieved by council culture because all through human society we have had topics that are taboo, we have had cultural norms around what is appropriate to say to people about how we talk to different people, that it's no different. It's just that the norm has changed from what they're used to to a way that makes them uncomfortable. And they've just kind of, there's just unfortunately a bit of a learning curve that things that you could get away with saying in the past, you can't because that cultural norm has changed and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. So David, what do you think? And should we strengthen laws around hate speech as well? The... Ms. Dave's issue is that's just one that I, I I struggle to get my head around, mostly because the platform that she her her single issue activism around safety in women's sport, there's actually already safeguards in the Sex Discrimination Act which address this sort of thing. It's literally already provided for. It's just a solution in search um, of a problem. More worryingly, it's actually what I think is just a, a, a fig leaf or, you know, this really poorly constructed Trojan horse for bigotry. And it's just being used as a sort of um, as a sort of cultural war rather than being for any meaningful purpose. On her comments, which obviously go much, much farther than purely looking out for the safety of, of, of women athletes, even the, the Liberal Party themselves, many of them have you know, called the comments reprehensible and distance themselves from it. And I obviously do the exact same thing. Your second part of your question, whether we need to enshrine sort of hate speech, further hate speech protections. Um, I think the law as it is operates okay. I just think these sort of issues need to be called out as they, as what they are, which is just a, yeah, a, a, just an attempt to create a cultural um, war. That's my opinion. Someone described the tactic of pre-selecting Deves as the dead cat strategy because everyone's talking about the dead cat and not any of the other massive policy failures of the Morrison government. To some extent, yeah, they've pre-selected her as a distraction from all of the things that they've mishandled because everyone's talking about transphobia and it's much easier for Morrison to kind of drum up a culture war than to actually fix any of the real problems facing our society there are so many other things you could do to improve women's sports. This isn't in the top 100 things, you know, we could have more mentoring. We could invest more in more facilities, make sure that men's and women's sports have equal airtime in the media, that we make sure that they have equal pay for, you know, winning similar levels of competition. There's so many tangible things that could be done to help both community and elite sports um, to be more inclusive for women's participation that don't 
depend on excluding people because you know at the end of the day I think sports they're they don't matter at the end of the day in the sense that we watch them for fun we play them to feel fit and make friends there's sort of a cultural performance around participation and winning but it's not life or death and to me it's more important that we have a society built around everyone feeling included and kindness rather than having a vicious conversation about who doesn't get to play. This was Inside Ringer talking to David Mickelbrough from Blade Party and Chris and Glanville from The Greens. Watch out for our next episode where we record the upcoming Moringa candidate forum with all the candidates except, you guessed it, Liberal Party candidate Catherine Deeves. Till then, make sure to subscribe to find future podcasts.